Hello and welcome to Turning Point Sermons. My name is Cameron Howell and thank you for tuning in today. We have a special sermon for you today by a missionary who's on the field in a country uh, where it is dangerous for his name to be announced. And so we're unable to announce his full name. Um, but this sermon, I believe, will be a big help to you. And it's entitled, Hiding from the Lord. John chapter 11 tonight, please. And let's jump right into the preaching of the Word of God. John chapter 11. And I'll begin by reading verse 20. John chapter 11, verse 20. Let's stand together one time before the preaching in honor of God's word. Verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. Notice especially these closing words of the verse. But Mary sat still in the house. Dear God, we've come tonight not to hear from one of your servants so much as to hear from you, to hear from your word, to hear from heaven. And we want your word to be preached, not as we deserve to preach it, but as you deserve to have it preached, humbly yet boldly and endued with power from on high. We ask God that as a preacher and as a people, we'd be so yielded to thy spirit that thy will could be accomplished for this hour. And we'll thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was in a church in California. I had gotten there long before the service was to begin, as is typically my custom. And I was sitting in the auditorium and just getting caught up on my Bible reading while I was waiting for the service time. As I was sitting there reading the Bible, I was in this famous chapter of John chapter 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and I came upon this verse. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary? Do I, my, my eyes deceive me? Did I see that right? But Mary sat still in the house? And I'm thinking to myself, Mary, you of all people, if there's a woman in the Bible that epitomizes someone that wanted to be at the feet of Jesus, it's Mary. And yet now in the hour of her darkest grief, in the moment of her greatest need, she just sits there avoiding his presence. I couldn't read anymore. I was upset. It didn't take me long to realize that I wasn't really upset with Mary so much as I was upset with Mark. I too had a reputation as wanting to be in his presence, as wanting to walk with him, as wanting to be close to him. And yet sometimes when I needed him the most, it seems, I would distance myself from him. And I began to ask myself, why do any of us ever avoid the presence of the Lord? Would you ask yourself that question tonight? I understand the omnipresence of God. I understand that the psalmist wrote, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I send up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. I get it. God is everywhere. But I'm talking about times where rather than running to him, we avoid him, we hide from him, we, we distance ourselves. And I'm asking this question tonight. Why do we ever avoid the presence of the Lord? And very quickly, I'd like us to review four Bible stories pertinent to that question. 
And in each story, we find a slightly different answer because we're not all exactly the same. But I hope when you read the Bible, you read the Bible looking for yourself in the story. So the Bible is not only God's revelation of himself to man, the Bible is also God's revelation of man to himself. We read it as though we're looking at our face in a glass. See yourself in the story. And by the way, we're not always the guy in the white hat. Turn quickly with me to Genesis chapter 3, if you would. Genesis is easy to find. It's the first book of the Bible. In chapter 3 and verse 8, I want you to notice these words about Adam and Eve. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves. Now underscore these words, if you would, please. From the presence of the Lord God. What? Adam and Eve. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Turn about one page to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 16, the story of Cain and Abel. And in verse 16, we read these words. And Cain went out, notice these words, underline them if you will, from the presence of the Lord. Now if you'll turn with me to Jonah, and that's a little more difficult if you can't find it. Find Obadiah. Jonah's the very next book. <laughs> that didn't help at all. It gave you a little more time, though, didn't it? Jonah chapter 1. And in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 3, we read, But Jonah ran, or he rose up to flee unto Tarshish, notice, from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish. Notice again, from the presence of the Lord. Verse 10, Then were the men, the other men in the boat, exceedingly afraid, and said to him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord. Because he told him so. Adam, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Why are you hiding from the presence of the Lord? Cain, what is this that we read that you went out from the presence of the Lord. Jonah, a preacher of righteousness, Jonah, what is it that you fled from the presence of the Lord? And Mary, of all people, why are you just sitting there avoiding the presence of the Lord? And I think maybe if we can answer the questions in the case of these people, that some of us will find an answer in our own lives, for why we sometimes avoid his presence. Very quickly, I believe Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord over their embarrassment. I do that. God, you've been so good to me. God, everything that I have, you've given to me. You've given me my wife and 16 children and 14 grandchildren. You've given me a ministry and a wonderful heritage. I can't believe, God, what I've done. And I'm so embarrassed. Adam and Eve, God, had made everything. And while he owns it all, the earth is the Lord, and the fullness are of the world, and they that dwell therein, he really made a lot of it for them. He said, here's a garden, I've made it for you. And he put him in the garden, and he said, you eat of all the trees of the garden except the tree in the midst of the garden. Imagine only one thou shalt not. 
The Jews had about 600 commandments that they tried to follow. Adam and Eve had one thou shalt not. They had one thou shalt be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. And one thou shalt not. Don't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. And everything they enjoyed from day to day, the paradise, walking with God, the animals, and all the joy and all of the delight and the pleasure and the prosperity enjoyed by the first man and the first woman. And they traded it for a piece of fruit. And they realized, the Bible said, that they were naked. They realized that they were undone and they were ashamed and they were embarrassed. I do that. I knew a young man named Russell. I'm going to leave out the part that he's my wife's younger brother because if I tell you that, she'd be embarrassed. So I'm going to just leave that part out of the sermon. I made a note to myself. But Russell, as a young man, was a bit absent-minded, and he hadn't yet gotten to that stage where he knew anything about modesty. And Russell, from time to time, he'd go to the bathroom to take a shower, he'd take off his clothes, he'd drop them in the hamper of the laundry chute, and he'd take his shower, and only after completing the shower would it dawn on him that he hadn't brought any other clothes to the bathroom. So Russell would run from the bathroom through the living room up the stairs, down the hall, to his bedroom, naked. Even when company was there. And, and I happened to know this because I was frequent company in their home. But the day came when it dawned on Russell that it's embarrassing to run from the bathroom, through the living room, up the stairs, down the hall, to the bedroom, naked, when company's there. So he started doing it with his eyes closed. Well, that helps. But isn't that just about as foolish as we are? In our Adam and Eve moments when we're hiding ourselves from God? Well, I hope he doesn't notice that I'm naked. I hope he won't find me over here. And the only one we're deceiving is ourselves. And rather than running to the only one that can clothe us, we hide ourselves in our embarrassment about our shortcomings and our sins. I believe Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord over their embarrassment. I believe that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord over his punishment. His punishment. Now this to me is a remarkable story. I believe with all my heart that God was giving Cain a second chance. Not only do I believe that God gave Cain a second chance... But I believe that God had often spoken with Cain before. Now, perhaps I'm inferring too much. Perhaps not everything's implied that I tend to see in it. But when I read the words of God where he says to Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? It seems to imply to me that in previous occasions that God would come and God would speak to Cain and Cain would seek his face and Cain would meet his glance and Cain would look him in the eye and Cain would want fellowship with him but something was different this time what's wrong boy why won't you look up at me why is your countenance fallen 
Every mother in the room knows this. You walk into the room. You told the child to stop bouncing on the bed. And sure enough, you catch them bouncing on the bed. You say, did I just see you bouncing up and down on the bed? By the way, you don't ask the question because you don't know the answer. You ask the question to hold him accountable for the answer. And what does the child do? Looks down. Most of the time, we meet our children. They raise their eyes, perhaps even raise their arms to be picked up, to be as close to us as they can possibly be. They can't get up where we are, but they lift up their hands and they lift up their eyes and they're saying, go ahead, pick me up. I want to be close to you. But in the moment of their sin, perhaps something's wrong. Their countenance has fallen. They're not seeking your fellowship. And here is Cain. He's meeting with the judge of the universe. He's meeting with a God who would say, when a man sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. God, who is always just and always right, would have had every right in the world to simply open up the earth and swallow Cain alive into hell. And he didn't do it. He's actually talking to him. He's reasoning with him. He's giving Cain an opportunity to get things right. And Cain walks away from the presence of the Lord with these words. My punishment is greater than I can bear. I have a question for you. Did God punish Cain, yes or no? Did God? It's, It's not a trick question. Did God punish Cain, yes or no? Yes, absolutely. But wouldn't you agree that his punishment was far less than his iniquities deserved? Oh, yes. God was very merciful in his punishment. But rather than hugging God's neck and saying, Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God, give me another chance. Oh, God, just let me be close to you again. He walked away bitter over the punishment. As the father of 16, I've occasionally in the past had to give a spanking. I know that shocks you. The only uncertainty is the word occasionally. Perhaps it was frequently. But I want to make something abundantly clear. When we, when we gave spankings in our house, there was no yelling and screaming, no chasing a child around, no, no somebody getting beating and bruised and, and all of that nonsense. It was very matter of fact. In our house, if a child got a spanking, he or she got a spanking for breaking a rule that was predetermined before the child was ever born. And not only was the rule predetermined, the number of swats was predetermined. And they knew the rules better than I did. If I couldn't remember, I could ask, now how many swats do we give for that particular infraction? And they'd tell me honestly. Now most areas of disobedience or something similar in our home were five swats. And the child would be explained to him what he'd done and he'd agree and confess and we'd have him lean over the bed on his own accord, his own free will and Ask him to stand still, and I began administering the punishment. I don't know why I did it, but I almost always counted out loud. My children learned to count at a very young age. And they'd lean over, and I'd say, one, two, three, four, five. And the moment I say five, More times than not, something beautiful happened. 
The child would spin and jump and land in my arms and weep on my shoulder and we'd hug and I'd say, I'm so glad that's over. I hope we never have to do that again. But can I tell you, and Pastor Mutcher, you already know, can I tell you what breaks the heart of a father when he says, five, and there's no spin, and there's no jump. And he reaches out his arms to extend that traditional hug to try to pull the child towards himself, and there's just the slightest pull away. They don't even say it with their lips, but with that little pull away, they're saying, you spanked me too hard, Daddy. I'm not going to take this. Instead of crying on our shoulder like Nolan's, oh, Daddy, I love you, oh, Daddy, I'm sorry, oh, Daddy, just keep me close to you. We pull away. Why? Over our punishment. I believe Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord over their embarrassment. I believe that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord over his punishment. And I believe that Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord over his assignment. His assignment. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I don't believe Jonah wanted to quit preaching. I know every, every preacher, maybe at some time in his life, some moment, like every Monday morning or something like that, struggles with a concept. But most God-called preachers that I know, it's like in the Bible where it talks about, I believe, Jeremiah, where he tried to quit and he said, but, but it burned in his bones and he couldn't be stayed. He just couldn't stop preaching. And I think Jonah had preached for God. And I think Jonah wanted to keep right on preaching for God. I think Jonah was just saying, not there, God. Oh, God, Nineveh. Those are the Assyrians. And we committed whoredom spiritually with the Assyrians and we got close and worldly with them and then they turned on us and they persecuted us and they hate us and they despise us and we're an embarrassment to the world, especially when we think of the Assyrians. God, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. I'll go all the way to Tarshish to preach. Maybe that's not what he was thinking, but I kind of think maybe that's what he was thinking. I'll preach at Tarshish. God, have you looked at a map? Tarshish is even further away than Nineveh. Just don't make me go there. Just don't make me go there. And you know what his concern was? His concern wasn't that he'd flop. His concern was that the people would repent and God would have mercy and forgive them, and he wasn't ready for that. I wonder how many people sit in our pews, perhaps embarrassed over something they've done, and they no longer seek that closeness with God that they once knew. I wonder how many people sit in our pews, or maybe they've even abandoned the church. Perhaps they still read the Bible from time to time and pray from time to time, but their heart's grown cold, and it's been a long time since they've felt any spark of revival, since they've sensed any real closeness to God, since they've sensed the presence of the Holy Spirit resting upon them. And they'd say it goes back to some time when they sinned, and they're being chased into the Lord, and rather than lovingly appreciating the chastening hand of the Lord, they... They went out from his presence. I wonder how many young people, perhaps in our church, they once loved to go soul winning. They once loved to serve. They once loved the Lord Jesus. They once talked about him with a thrill in their soul and were so thankful for their heritage. And then perhaps one day, God called them to a particular calling or a particular field. 
And they thought, not their God. Not their God. Oh, my. Oh, don't do that to God. Don't do that. You say, preacher, are you, are you implying that perhaps if God calls me somewhere and I don't go there, that I'd be swallowed by a whale? I'm going to go out on a limb tonight and say, I don't think so. Now, I'm neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet. I wouldn't recommend you buy any oceanfront property. I wouldn't recommend you go on any long cruises. I mean, I really don't know for sure. But maybe that swallowed by a whale was just once in a history time. But I know this, you'll be fleeing from the presence of the Lord. I know this, there's no place sweeter in all the world than the center of God's will. And someday God might call you to a place you'd rather not go or to a people whom you'd rather not reach. God says, you've heard them say, this has been said of old time, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy, but I said you love your enemy. God wants everyone reached. Those people that we're being programmed to hate in this divisive society and age are people for whom Christ died just like he died for you and for me and for our children. I was preaching near Atlanta, Georgia in a church perhaps larger than this, a beautiful auditorium like you have and very large church. And I was preaching a missions conference and we'd had wonderful services, but on the last night the pastor said, Brother Bachman, you've been turning the invitation over to me every night and I appreciate it, but he said, tonight I just want you to go right into the invitation after you preach. He said, I've got a quartet and they're all ready to sing, here am I, I will go. I want you to call them right up, get them behind you, and I want you to extend the invitation for anybody that this week for the first time is surrendering his life to serve God full time on a mission field. And I said, of course, preacher, whatever you want. He said, afterwards, I'll get up and I'll open the invitation. If the lost need to be saved, if people need to get right, or people want to join the church, get baptized, whatever. But he said, when you're done preaching, I want you to make an appeal for people to join you on the platform who are saying, I'm willing to go. I preached the sermon. I called the quartet to the platform just like the pastor instructed. They began to sing, here am I, I will go. And I asked for people to come exactly as I'd been instructed. There were some teenagers that came. There was a young couple that came. There was an elderly gentleman, probably already retired, all the way from the back he came. But back in a pie section over here on my right, there was a family there, and the lady was holding a baby in her arms, and she was just weeping. And all of a sudden, that family shocked us as they stood up and they came down the aisle. So, well, Brother Bible, why were you shocked? You see, that family, they weren't, members of the church there. They weren't local visitors. They were there for the missions conference. They were missionaries. And the pastor came down from the, his chair in the pulpit and he met them right here at the front steps and the woman's just weeping and weeping and he's saying, man, he said, it's obvious God's spoken to your heart. But he said, right now we're just asking people to join Brother Bachman on the platform who for the first time in their lives are surrendering to the mission field. And she said, oh, pastor, oh, pastor, she said, that's what I'm doing. He said, but ma'am, you're a missionary. He said, I know. 
She said, I know, but I've never surrendered to it. She said, I've been fighting my husband. I've been fighting God. I didn't want to be in the field. And she said, tonight I'm surrendering my heart to be a missionary. Pastor brought him up on the platform, told the story. People were weeping. More people came and joined us. And God just crowned that service as only he can. Several months later, I was preaching in Hammond at Brother Hiles at the time, leading that church, and he, he gave me the 6 o'clock hour. I don't remember him doing that very often. I was just so honored. He said, just preach, he said. And I got up and preached. I didn't know that the same family was in that church that night. And right after the 6 o'clock hour, when just before the big service, he had me standing up front in case somebody wanted a prayer card or wanted me to sign something or whatever. And that lady came to my wife and told her the story I just told you. I'd flown to Georgia directly from Germany all alone and gone back. And my wife said, oh, I know that story. My husband told me, and he was so pleased. She said, well, maybe your husband didn't know the whole story. Did he happen to mention I was holding my baby boy in my arms? And my wife said, yeah, I believe he said that. He'd been a toddler really at the time. but She said, well, maybe your husband didn't know, but my boy was born with a disease. And I was so concerned that he wouldn't get the medical attention he needed on the field. I didn't want to go back. And she said, not long after that service, I took my boy to the doctor for his regular checkup. And the doctor acted strangely, and he ran one test and another test and another test, and I feared the worst. And finally he came back in, and he said to me, he said, ma'am, I have no way to explain this. When a child is born with this disease, he dies from this disease. But I cannot find a trace of it in your son's body. See, it wasn't that God wanted that little boy to suffer it was God wanted that mama's heart to say, God, send me anywhere. Only be with me. It wasn't that God wanted Jonah in the belly of the whale. It was that God wanted Jonah to say, I'll go anywhere for you. And Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Over their embarrassment and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord over his punishment and Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord over his assignment. And finally, Mary, as you turn back to John chapter 11, and as you do, just parenthetically, allow me to insert something into the message that doesn't seem like it belongs. You're going to think that I've suddenly lost my mind and gone on to another message, but I promise you, I haven't suddenly lost my mind. I did it gradually, and it was a long time ago. And I also promise you, when we're finished, I think you'll see this fits the message very well. But as you find John chapter 11, can we just enter Jesus? Could Jesus make a cameo appearance in the message? Jesus, the one who is the positive example of all things. And can we watch him in the week of his passion, in the hour of his grief? See him as they come to the garden where he's prayed, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Watch him as they come to arrest him, an entire group of military men that are well armed have come and he takes control of the whole situation. He says, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he, or in the original, I am. 
when he simply spoke the words, I am, they fell over backwards. How do you arrest a guy like that? They stand back up. They draw their swords, and Peter draws his sword, and he chops off the ear of Melchus, servant of the high priest Caiaphas. And Jesus calls a timeout. Uh, just a minute, fellas. And he picks up the ear, and he heals the man. How do you arrest a guy like that? And then he says, listen, fellas, you didn't come for these that follow me. You came for me. You just take, take me and you let them go. And he went with them to a trial that was a banana republic trial, if you will, a mock court trial, if you will. If anyone in history could have pled his own case, it was Jesus. Not only was Jesus perfectly innocent of all charges, but he is the advocate. And yet he said nothing. They took him out and they beat him. But as a lamb before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. They mocked him, they spat upon him, they slapped him and cursed him. But when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he was persecuted, he threatened not. So as they take that cat of nine tails and they beat his back until it's bloody and bruised and torn and some lesser men were actually torn in half just by the beating. And as he stands up, having freshly been beaten as they lay the cross beam across his back, and as he begins to walk out towards the hill of Calvary with that cross beam upon his back, his vision so marred he doesn't even look human. And ladies begin to see him and they begin to weep and he turns to them very calmly and says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. See him as he comes to the top of that hill. As they lay down the cross, and he simply lays himself upon it, for he said, no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down, and I will take it up again. Watch as they take those spikes and pound them through the hands and the feet of our Savior. I wonder what he'll say. Will he call 10,000 angels to come and destroy them? No, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They lift that cross and they drop it into a hole. When they drop it into a hole, every bone in his body was out of joint. I wonder what he'll say. Son, behold thy mother. To Mary, behold thy son. St. John, take care of mama for me. Watch him as he drags his freshly beaten back up and down that rugged cross because crucifixion was death by strangulation. The way the weight pressed upon the lungs, they'd have to pull themselves up just to inhale properly. Up, down, up, down, and watch him as he goes up and down and up and down, and as each time up and down the cross, the Wounds are freshly opened and the bleeding continues. And I wonder what he'll say. Behold, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And I very intentionally, as I see the skies go dark 
I very intentionally skip over his fourth comment and we'll come back to it in a moment. But even for those hours that he suffered our hell, smitten of God and afflicted, he did so with just two words, I thirst. Not even a complaint, just a statement of fact. As he suffered our hell, I thirst. And as the hour grows late, and he pulls himself up the cross for one final time, and he inhales for one final time, and he gathers all of his strength for one final time, and he shouts out, not a shout of defeat, but a shout of victory, it is finished! And then as his chin falls to a near pulseless chest, he simply breathes out a prayer, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And I say, look at his composure. Look at his strength. Is there nothing that rattles him? Is there nothing that's so egregious? Is there nothing so painful that he'd cry out in anguish? Oh, yes, that one thing I skipped. When my sin and your sin was placed upon him for the first time in all eternity, Jesus was outside of the presence of God. And he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why? And as I revisit that pinnacle moment in history, I feel the Holy Spirit speak to my heart and say, you're so unlike my son. The slightest pain and you gripe, the smallest injustice and you complain. But then when sin comes between us and you're separated not from salvation or not from God's love because nothing can separate us from that, but you're separated from me in that close presence rather than crying out, my God, my God, why? Like Mary, you just sit there. You just sit there pretending you're going to go on without me. You just sit there pretending that you don't need me. It was the next day I was back in the same church. There was a conference there. I hadn't picked up my Bible other than for the sermons. But I hadn't picked it up to read since the day before. I was still mad. I was still mad at Mary. I was still mad at Mark. And I picked it up again because I had to keep reading. And I came to these words in John chapter 11. In verse 28, and when she, she is Martha, and when she had so said, and went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master's come and calleth for thee. When I read those words, all these stories that I had been contemplating in my mind for the last 24 hours began to rush back to me. Adam sinned. And yet, what did he hear? The voice of the Lord God in the midst of the garden, in the cool of the day. Adam! Adam! Cain has sinned. He's killed his brother. And what do I read? 
God shows up. Cain, can we talk? Jonah's fled from God. And now he's in the belly of a whale. And what is this I read? And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, the second time. Jonah, can we talk now? Can we be together again? I'm almost done, but Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord over their embarrassment, Cain over his punishment, Jonah over his assignment, and I believe Mary over her disappointment. Mary had sent for the Lord to come heal Lazarus. And Mary had not only sent for, but Mary had called and prayed believing. In just a moment from our text, she would say the same thing that her sister Martha said, Lord, if thou hadst been here, our brother had not died. Deep within herself, she was still convinced of the lordship of Christ. She was still convinced of his great ability. She was still convinced that if he'd have been there, he could have healed Lazarus. Then why in the hour of her darkest grief does she just sit there? I'll tell you why. Because God hadn't answered her prayer. And she was so disappointed. She wasn't sure she wanted to see him. God, you hurt me. Oh, we never say it with our lips. We're smarter than that. But deep in our psyche, God, you didn't answer my prayer the way I thought you'd answer my prayer and the timing when I thought you should answer my prayer. And now if it's okay with you, I'm just going to sit this out. And what did Martha say? Mary, the Lord's come. And he calleth for thee. And Pastor Layman, as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and ran unto him. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. It really doesn't matter why we're avoiding him. The great news is he wants us back. And he says, draw nigh unto me and I will draw nigh unto you. Whatever the reason, if there's anything in your heart where you say, there was a day when I was closer to him than I am today. Is it embarrassment, punishment, assignment, disappointment, whatever it is? I have Martha's message for you tonight. He calleth for thee.